Do you know that this is November 5th? And exactly one month from today is our Women's Night of Worship service. How many of you have been to Women's Night of Worship? Yeah, it's a favorite, is it not? A favorite night. But here's two things you need to know. Two things. One, it's typically been on a Wednesday night, and this year it's on a Thursday. Okay, so don't be fooled. It's the first Thursday of December. It's December 5th, one month from today. But the second thing you need to know is that this year we have two service times. Now, I've been getting a lot of panicky phone calls and emails lately, people saying, help, I want to come, I want to bring my grandchildren, I want to bring my kids, I want to bring my neighbors. But last year we packed 650 people in this room and there wasn't a chair left for anyone. So thinking that you want to bring more people this year, we're going to go for two services. Um, Five o'clock would be a great service if you have little kids who need to get to bed on time for school the next day. Or if you are older and you don't like to be out driving late at night, um, that would be an awesome service for you. And then the other, the 7.30 to 9 o'clock service would be great for anybody who doesn't have either of those things to worry about. Um, Hopefully, I'm praying now that you divide equally between those two services. That would be amazing. But um, your group leaders have postcards that are actual invitations for you to take and to hand out to the people that you want to invite. All right, we have a very, very important lesson today to talk about. But before we jump in, I just want to tell you that I love a British accent. (laughs) How's that for being irrelevant? (laughs) I love a British accent. My husband and I have gotten totally into watching those British, like, mystery detective shows. It's just, I love it. Jamie and I last week slipped out of work and saw a matinee of Downton Abbey. I don't know what it is, but it's like the elegance, the beauty, the British accents. It just all makes me feel like I've been transported into another world in time. And I feel like when somebody speaks in a British accent, they just sound so much smarter, (laughs) so much more regal. I wish we all had British accents. But here's something interesting. A study was recently published in the Wall Street Journal that studied how people responded to other people with foreign accents. And what they found is that we actually have a lot of biases against people who have a different sounding voice than we do. This is what they said. They said, the further from native sounding an accent is, the harder we have to work and the less trustworthy we perceive the information to be. It says, researchers found that the heavier the accent, the more skeptical participants became. Now, the underlying reason they identified, which is good news, is actually not based in being prejudiced against a person who has a foreign accent. It really goes back to the brain, that our brains are lazy, and we don't like to work hard at trying to communicate with people who have really difficult accents for us to understand. They said they found that our brains prefer the path of least resistance. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that we might have some biases that we don't even realize purely because we're lazy in our brains? It also makes a lot of sense why we tend to exhibit favoritism towards people who most closely resemble us. It's just easier, right? 
Is this true of you? Think about it for a moment. Is this true of your experience? You're probably thinking, oh no, not me. You know, we've lived, those of us who are my age at least, we've had 50 years of American history where we have become quite aware of how racism, gender um, distinctions, all of these things have impacted our worlds. We, we were very educated, I think, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, about the sensitivities that we should have towards other people. And I feel like we're in a, a generation now who have become quite sensitive to the differences between people. We are aware that partiality and favoritism and prejudice are not acceptable. But let me ask you this. Are you a respecter of persons? Do you pay more attention to certain people because of their physical appearance, because of their cleanliness, because of their perceived status? Do you engage with people differently who dress differently than you do, or who have different skin color, or who speak differently than you do? How do you view people who are disabled? Just think about these things for a moment. I wish I could tell you the stories that I have experienced living life with my son, Adam, who's back there on PowerPoint. Um, Because he's physically weak and he's in a wheelchair, he's been treated as being mentally disabled his whole life. Whether it was teachers, who he was in elementary school and he was on an IEP, if you don't know what that means, it's an individualized education plan. For him, it was an IEP because he had some physical needs. But when he would come into a classroom with an, on the IEP, his teachers immediately assigned him to the lowest reading and the lowest math classes. That continued his whole life. Even though he graduated from Honors College at U of O, he, was given, he wasn't given full-time job opportunities. People would only hire him for temporary stints because they thought he just couldn't handle full-time work. In his high school freshman year, he went into his math class, and his teacher got down into his face and talked in a really loud voice very slowly because she thought he couldn't understand. It also might have been that as a 14-year-old, he had some facial hair. And so he thought, well, maybe she thinks I'm a lot older than I really am. Maybe she thinks I've been held back for years. Well, after a couple of months, he kept getting A's on all his tests, and she realized, oh, you actually aren't mentally disabled. Pretty soon, he was tutoring the other kids in the classroom. (laughs) By the end of the year, he was her favorite student, and I'll bet to this day he would say he was her favorite student of her whole career as a math teacher at Lake Oswego High School. Why is it that we evaluate people based on their external appearance? Why is that? What is prejudice? Well, it's defined as an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. What's favoritism? It's defined as favoring of one person or group over others with equal claims or partiality. The word favoritism in the Greek, the way that it's used in our passage, It means receiving the face. 
It's basically, it means that when you see someone, you see their face, you, you perceive their external appearance, and you accept that as being representative of the person. But we know that the Bible says that that's not how God looks at people. God doesn't look at the external. God looks at the heart. In fact, in Acts 34, it tells us, too, that God shows no partiality at all towards any people because of any distinction in that external way. So do you show partiality towards certain people? I mean, I want you just to like, be honest for just a moment with yourself. Examine your own heart this morning as we talk about this. Is there a people group? Is there a type of person? Is there a particular individual that you're either partial towards or partial against? Today, James is going to make it clear that favoritism or prejudice is a sin. And as a follower of Christ, he's going to tell us we should have no part of this. None. He's saying that the church is not like the world. Yes, it happens in the world. But the church is not like the world. And so the, the church must be a place where everybody is loved similarly in Christ. Today, James is going to teach us that faith and favoritism are incompatible. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. And he's going to show us that the way that we behave towards people reveals what we believe about God. So we're going to go through this passage in three parts. The first part, we're going to look at the sin of favoritism from James 2, the first four verses, 1 through 4. Then we're going to look at the gift of grace from James 2, verses 5 through 7. And lastly, we're going to look at the law of love from James 2, verses 8 through 13. So let's begin looking at the sin of favoritism. Now you remember when we left off last week, James was reminding us that believers demonstrate true religion. Remember, we didn't like that word religion, but we know what James is trying to say. He's demonstrating, he demonstrated to us that true religion has three characteristics. It's represented in controlled speech, in how we care for the poor and the needy, and then also in personal purity. Well, now he's bringing up a fourth point. This is a continuation of what he was telling us last week. But the fourth point is addressing the problem of favoritism. Because he knows that another common way that the church slides into worldliness is through favoritism. Specifically in how the church honors the rich and neglects the poor. So this is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thought. Now, James is living in an honor-shame culture. And in this culture, it was customary to esteem a wealthy person who would elevate the status of the church or financially benefit the community. There were no banks in the first century. And so, what did you do with your wealth? Well, you would wear gold rings on your fingers. And the more gold rings you had, the more wealth you had. So as you engaged in the community, everybody could see how much you were worth. Or you would take your jewels and you would embed them in your coats. 
And as you walked around, your coat would display how much you were worth. So everybody could see exactly how wealthy that you were. Now, can you imagine if we engaged in our lives with a digital readout that tallied our net worth on your forehead? And everywhere you went, people would look at you and know, oh, you're worth a lot. Therefore, I'm going to esteem you and value you. Or, oh, you don't have anything, so I'm going to dismiss you as irrelevant. You know what would happen in a very short period of time is we would start to believe that that number dictated our own sense of worth, right? It wouldn't no longer be about what's in our bank accounts. It would be what is our identity. We would forget all about our identity in Christ, So the early church struggled with this dilemma in many of the same ways that that we do in our churches today. So it's kind of comforting, isn't it, to know that the early church didn't have it all figured out, how to deal with the pressures of culture and how those things come into the church and shape how people respond to each other? There's nothing new under the sun, after all, is there? Well, James is calling out this kind of partiality as sin. He's saying that the world's values should never be evidenced in the church. Because God's kingdom is upside down from the kingdom of the world. In fact, he defines God's kingdom in Matthew 5.3 where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So why are we so prone to judge people by their outward appearance or by their potential to add value to our own lives? There was a a report in Newsweek magazine not too long ago that actually studied how people evaluate each other in the workplace based on their outward appearance. They actually um, conducted a survey and they found that in all elements of the workplace, so whether it's hiring, whether it's politics, whether it's promotions, they conducted a survey that, that revealed that outward appearance makes a huge impact on whether people are hired, promoted, Let me tell you what they found. They said 57% of hiring managers believe that an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have a harder time getting hired. 68% of hiring managers believe that once a person hires, the way they look impacts whether managers will uh, support them for a promotion or offer them a job advancement. 59% advised candidates to spend as much time on their outward appearance as they do in perfecting their resumes. 61% said that women would benefit from wearing clothing that highlights their figures. 66% said they would hesitate to hire anyone who is overweight. 84% said they would hesitate to hire someone who looked old, even if they were qualified. And 64% of hiring managers said that they believed companies should be allowed to hire people based on their looks. This is the world we live in, right? We know this. We feel this, don't we? Um, This is a world where people value the outward appearance more than they value education, skill, and character qualities. But what James is saying is this can't happen in the church. Yes, this is the world. We know that. But it's not meant to be the church. And yet, sadly, it is sometimes how it is in the church, isn't it? I've been in churches where... A wealthy person comes into the church, and they immediately make their presence known. They immediately begin to to network with the pastors and the leaders to let people know just how much they could benefit the community. Um, Some people come into the church intentionally looking for that kind of respect and recognition. 
I've been at church where a wealthy person comes into the community and they do everything they can to keep that quiet, to keep a low profile, and yet someone will identify that they're wealthy and the leadership will wrap them into leadership and get them involved and seek to, to maintain their support and loyalty. I was part of a church many years ago. There was a startup church and a wealthy couple came to our church and within a few weeks they made a proclamation that they wanted to give a large sum of money to the church so the church could buy its own building or build its own building. Well, the pastor quickly enveloped this couple into leadership. The woman actually joined the staff as the church secretary. She was a person who had a lot of broken relationships, and she identified me as being her next best friend. The pastor started putting a lot of pressure on me to be the kind of friend that this woman wanted, that I was to keep this woman happy because she was going to donate a large amount of money to buy a building for our church. This is everything that James is telling us, do not do this. It will not go well. And actually, this situation ended in ruin. I quit my job over it. This couple left the church over it. Eventually, the pastor left the church. And eventually, the church disbanded. This is serious. I'm so grateful today to be part of a church where the pastors and elders are never informed about who gives what. It is absolute confidentiality. There's only one person who actually knows who gives what, and that's the business manager, and it never leaves her office. This is vital to assuring that people are esteemed as equals in the church, and no one is elevated or devalued based on their financial status. Now, what did Jesus model to us about this? Jesus was not a respecter of persons. He never looked at the outward appearance of a person, but he always looked at the heart. And it mattered to him. it didn't matter to him whether someone was dressed in fancy clothes or someone was dressed in, in tattered clothes. It didn't matter to him whether someone gave a big donation or just a widow's mite. He looked at the heart of a person and he valued their love and their sacrifice. Also, Jesus was able to see the potential in people. He looks at Simon, the fisherman, with the impulsive personality, and he sees in Simon the future rock, Peter, powerful proclaimer of the gospel in the early church. He looks at Matthew, a very despised tax collector, and he sees in him a future gospel writer with an eye for details who could record Jesus' life in such detail that it could be read by people centuries into the future. He sees a woman from Samaria by a well who's battered and beaten down, and he sees in her a powerful evangelist through all of Samaria. He sees an angry man named Saul who's got contempt against Christians, and he sees in him a powerful theologian named Paul who's going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This is how Jesus sees people. He saw people in the fullness of their potential. He's able to look at the heart of each individual, whether that person was rich or poor, and able to see all that they could become if they trusted in him. And the same is true for us. God sees you. He sees you. He sees into your heart. He sees who you are. He looks at you through the condition of your inner being. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. But Jesus also sees you in your full potential in Christ. 
And that's what we can learn, that we must look at each other through the eyes of Christ. We must look at each other through the eyes of Christ. Think about how we might have looked at Jesus in his day. I mean, Isaiah 53 tells us that he was considered to be a poor man. He had no home. He was from Nazareth. That was a town on the other side of the tracks. We wouldn't have given any thought to anything that could, good, could have come from that place. He was not considered to be good-looking. Probably would have dismissed him as being average, if not slightly unattractive. And he had no material wealth. He brought nothing with him. Now, the religious people in Jesus' day, they rejected him. Now, the religious people in Jesus' day, they were the scholars. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies. They knew what to watch for in a Messiah. But they rejected him because he wasn't from the right place. He didn't have the right education. He didn't hang out with the right people. And he didn't have the right power. Well, what about us? Would we, would it, would we have given Jesus the time of day if we saw him? And yet Jesus is the glory of God manifest in human flesh. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus came to earth, the glory of God resided in him, and today the glory of God resides in every person who trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because every person who trusts in Jesus has the Holy Spirit dwelling within her. We are the dwelling place of God's glory, and the church is the collective glory of God's people all around the world. So it's no wonder that James is exhorting us to be different from the world in the way that we see each other. How do you see people around you who are different from you in appearance, in skin color, in dress? Or attractiveness? How do you engage with people who sound differently than you, who you have to work harder to understand what they're saying? How do you experience, how do you relate with people who just experience life differently than you because they've grown up in a different time, they're in a different season of their life, or maybe they're disabled and they can't engage in life the same way that you do? How do you Engage with people who live differently than you do because of money, either because they have a lot or they don't have very much. What if you looked at each person through the eyes of Jesus and saw the glory of God manifest in them? How would that differ from the way that you see people now? So this is how the upside-down kingdom of God becomes visible to the world through the church, because we don't see people the same way that the world sees them. This is, I think, that song, you know, they will know we are Christians by our love. When we see the glory of God in each person, we're living out the kind of love that we've received as we love other people. And that is radically countercultural. And that's what James is telling us. The church is countercultural. Well, now... James has warned us that favoritism and prejudice is a sin, and now he reminds us that our values are not God's values. God doesn't show partiality, and neither should we, because we are all recipients of God's grace. All of us are. He says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
You see, in that day, it was easy for, the, for people with wealth and power to exploit the poor. They would do that in court as they would influence decisions, and they would increase their own riches as a result. Now, the wealthy in this day were very few, but they were very powerful. The poor were the majority. Now, that's not who we are today. We're Americans by default. Most of us are richer than most people in the world live day by day. But in this day, most people were poor. They had no hope of ever being anything but poor. There was no opportunity in their life ever to change status. They were poor for life. But God, by his grace, has poured out his favor on the poor in this world. Consequently, the poor are rich in faith because they understand dependency on God in ways that the rich people do not. Now, this doesn't just include people who are poor in material things, in their bank accounts. It includes people who are poor from illnesses, from disabilities, from suffering, from spiritual poverty. These are people, the people who have been brought low in life are the ones who most experience the transforming power of Christ. So the poor are not just poor in monetary ways, but they're people who experience God in supernatural ways of blessing. Now, the reality is that all people who trust in God are blessed. We know that, whether rich or poor. But what James is telling us is he's saying it's easier for poor people to experience the riches of Christ and to appreciate the riches of Christ because that person has no riches or comforts in life. So the riches of Christ mean that much more. They're that much more dependent on God for their daily needs, for their daily bread, because they can't depend on themselves I think that's one of the challenges that we face is that we can so depend on ourselves that we don't understand that kind of dependency on God. We can provide for ourselves. So our challenge is, is different for most of us. But 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what we learned in our lesson in James 1, 9 through 11, that the grace of God makes the rich man poor because he can't depend on his wealth, and the poor man rich because he inherits the riches of grace in Christ. Now, what, let's remind ourselves about what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. It's unearned favor. And God, we know, saves us. He forgives us and gives us eternal life on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross, not on the basis of anything that we do to earn that grace. And this grace transcends rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, old and young. Paul expanded on this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, when he said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, because our status is changed by God's grace, James is telling us that our standards should also be changed. We should not value other people based on the world's standards, which is the outward appearance, but we must look at people through the lens of God's grace because we are recipients of God's grace, so we should look at others through that lens as well. There's a, there was a man in the third century, his name was St. Lawrence. He actually was martyred, but 
Lawrence served as a deacon in the church in Rome. And according to history, he was not only in charge of the holy things, like the chalices in the church and the candlesticks, but he was in charge of what we would call the benevolence fund, the mercy fund. And in his day, um, there was kind of a turn in culture where people started turning against Christians and started turning against the church. And the prefect, which is the, the chief magistrate of his day, called him and said that because of this turning of tide for Christianity, that he wanted Lawrence to bring all of the church riches to him, that he was going to take all the riches for himself. And so Lawrence sent back a message to the prefect, and he said this. He said, I do not deny that our church is rich and that no one in the church is richer, not even the emperor. I will bring forth all the precious things that belong to Christ if you will give me a little time to gather everything. And the prefect agreed, and the story is that he began dreaming of all he was going to do with the church's money and gold and silver. Well, for three days, Lawrence ran all over the city, and he started collecting the church's treasures. But the kinds of treasures he started collecting were not what the prefect was imagining. Instead, he walked through the alleys and squares of Rome, and he gathered the real treasures. He gathered the poor, the disabled, the blind, the homeless, and the leopards. He gathered these people into the church, and some of the people that it was recorded that he gathered, for example, was a man who had two empty eye sockets a man who was lame because his knee had been broken, a person with one leg shorter than the other, and a lot of people with with grave infirmities. He wrote down all of their names, and he lined them up inside the church, and then he called the prefect to come to the church to receive the riches. And of course, when he walked in, it wasn't what he expected. And this is what he said. He said, their bodies may not be beautiful, But within these vessels of clay, they bear all the treasures of divine grace. How beautiful is that? The truth is that we must remember that we are all recipients of God's grace. We are all recipients of God's grace. How have you been made rich in the kingdom of God by the grace of God? Do you have a story to share of how you came to become rich in God's kingdom through salvation in Christ? Maybe you could share that story at your next fellowship in your small group. Who are the human treasures of grace in your church family? Do you see them through that lens of grace? How can you express value and love towards those who take extra hits in the world and need an extra amount of God's grace? Well, let's look at the law of love. So James has told us what God values And now he is reminding us of the validity of God's word. And the question he's asking, or I'm asking, is are we actually living out the great commandment by loving our neighbors as ourselves? Because actually, if we're living as being a respecter of persons, if we're showing favoritism or we're exhibiting prejudice, then we're actually, he's saying, guilty of breaking the whole law. Verse 80 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So he's referring to the great commandment. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he's calling this the royal law because love is at the root of all those, of the whole ten, all ten commandments are rooted in love, and the summary of the two greatest commandments are also rooted in love. Because if you love God well and you love your neighbor well, you won't break any of those commandments. You'll obey him fully. But the opposite is also true. If you become a respecter of persons, it can lead you to break many of the other Ten Commandments. So, for example, if you might start lying to impress someone, or you might become idolatrous over someone else's stuff or lifestyle or spouse or whatever it would be that you, car, whatever, house, you can start to envy and covet and become idolatrous. Or you might mistreat your parents to get your inheritance early so that you can buy more stuff to be like the people that you envy or people you want to be like. Or you could succumb to sexual temptation with someone you perceive to be important or influential in your life. You see, it's a slippery slope. That's sin. That's the nature of sin. It's a slippery slope. Once we head down the path of partiality, sin can escalate. And if we're capable of disobeying one commandment, then certainly we're capable of disobeying many of the other commandments. So he says in verse 12, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, mercy and judgment both come from God. And God looks at our hearts. So when he looks at our hearts and he sees repentance and faith, he meets that with mercy. But if he looks at our hearts and he sees rebellion and unbelief, he meets that with justice. Now remember here, James is speaking to believers, so this is not about salvation. This is not about condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he's, he's reminding us that we have been set free by the law of liberty. We've been set free. So we have the ability to live like people who are free from the bondage of sin. We don't need to live in bondage to sin. We've been set free. So we've been set free because we've been recipients of God's mercy. Therefore, we can extend that mercy to other people. You know, again, James is telling us what he's been telling us all the way through our study so far, and that is that what we believe should dictate how we behave. If we believe this to be true from God, if we believe that we're recipients of mercy and love, then it should manifest itself in how we treat other people. The truth is that we must love others with the same love we receive from Christ. We must love others with the same love we receive from God. Faith always expresses itself through love. But love is, as you know, if you're married, or even if you're not, it's an act of the will. It's not always an emotion. It's a decision. It's a choice. When we choose to love others the way that God loves us, we bring glory to God. We demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So when we choose to love, we bring glory to God. And the Spirit then gives us discernment to see past the external and to be able to see into the heart of a person to see them in all of their potential as Christ sees them. Love always builds up where prejudice tears down. And so that's why James is telling us that faith and favoritism are incompatible. They're just, they just don't go together. And he's telling us loudly and clearly that favoritism is a sin. 
And it's a violation of the law of love, and it's disrespectful to people, and it's disrespectful and dishonoring to God. And the church should be different from the world in this way. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It should not look like the world at any point in time. It should always look radically countercultural. And one of the ways we do that is loving each other through the lens of God's grace. One of the greatest tests of our faith is how we treat other people because the way we behave towards people reveals what we believe in God. So I want to ask you, will you search your heart today? Even, as, even after we leave here, will you keep this question before you? Is there, is there any unconfessed bias toward or against someone in your life? Will you bring it to the Lord in prayer today? And will you ask God to help you see people through the eyes of Christ, to see them in all of their potential, and to be able to love them with the same love that you've received from God himself? I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray as we go out to our groups. Father, it seems every week James is just putting his finger on places in our hearts that make us feel uncomfortable because your word spotlights places in our own heart that need attention. And we're a bit uncomfortable right now because I'm sure for all of us, we, we don't treat people the way that you would like us to. We don't value people the way that we, we should because of the grace, the mercy, and the love we've received from you. And Lord, I just ask on behalf of all of us that you would help us. That's not our intention. We want to love people well. We don't want to be like our culture. We want to be able to be instruments of your love and mercy and grace. We want to see people as you see them. Thank you that you see us not as we truly are, but as who we are in Christ. You see us in all our potential. And so we pray that you would help us to see other people in all of their potential and that we might come alongside and love and encourage them and not show favoritism or bias or partiality. Help us, Lord, to be so radically different as your church that our example is transformative of our culture. Let us impact culture and not culture change the church. And so, Lord, we just say to you, help us, please. We need your help. And we believe that you can help because we believe in the power, the transforming power of Christ. So we pray in his name. Amen.